Welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture. I'm Susan Araslin. I'm David Daw. And this week we watched 100 Men and a Girl, which I... See, you you almost forgot. It's not that. It's that I always have to prep myself to not laugh because it is just a porn title and it is not that kind of movie. (sighs) Yeah, it's actually like an extremely innocent film. Have we just become horrible, degraded people as a culture that we see 100 men and a girl and our braids go there or like uh, was this just a really poorly titled film i i feel like it's i mean i feel like it's a little column a a little column b to be honest like i do feel like they got away with it in 1937 that not everybody was going there with it i also feel like it was not like twitter that did this to us right (laughs) it was like the 1950s when no i feel I definitely would have felt this way when I was a kid and there was no Twitter. Yeah. I think actually for me, part of what makes it worse is that I'm so used to girl being used in the 30s in movies that we watch as a way of referring to a grown woman rather than a child that 100 Men and a Girl is like a very different movie than 100 Men and a Girl. I think that's true, but I also think since Deanna Durbin's back, we have a little bit of how old is she from Three Smart Girls in this movie as well. Because I would accept any answer from 12 to 22. (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, in Three Smart Girls, she didn't make out with any dudes, and in this, she didn't make out with any dudes. So I I I would say like 12 to 17 would be mine. Yeah, you're probably right cuz god honestly like an interminable romance plotline would at least mean that this movie had more than 20 minutes of plot to it. See, I like this movie moved along at a similar clip to three smart girls but that because there was really only the one plot line it didn't feel like it was bizarre beyond comprehension i think what is weird about this movie is that it's an hour and 20 minutes long and fully 40 minutes of that is musical numbers and so we're just really stretching out the plot as much as we can And there just isn't much of it. It's mostly just a series of excuses for Deanna Durbin to sing. And like, that's fine because she's she's pretty good. Yeah. I mean, you know, this was the period of time where studios were kind of just building movies around anyone who had an interesting talent that they could find. Esther Williams will become famous in about four years. She gets signed to, I think, Columbia because Fox had a figure skater that they had been using for several years. And Columbia was like, well, we got to get ourselves a a sports person. And it's like, this movie is a story that is built around showcasing the fact that a relatively young woman has a very developed operatic singing voice. And like, that's the shtick yeah it's at least more palatable i think to me than hey this chick can swim really well let's make a movie about that oh sure and like i i 
I don't know. I had this weird experience watching this movie where I don't really have anything that I hated about it, but I did just keep going like, when's it going to totally fall apart and fail? (laughs) Yeah. And like, it never really does. It's never like a disaster of a movie. It's just this movie that constantly feels like it is going to be or ought to be. It's a concert musical where the premise is that Deanna Durbin's dad is one of a lot of out-of-work musicians in, I guess, New York? Miscellaneous town. They do at one point refer to wherever it is that the, I guess, Philharmonic is playing as the Manhattan Music Hall. Okay. So yeah, it's New York. And uh, they, through a series of unlikely events, Deanna Durbin's character comes to believe that a rich society woman will sponsor a symphony of out-of-work musicians if she can just put them together. That turns out to be rich people fucking with poor people, but then through sheer persistence, she manages to get them a performance and a famous conductor, and then they all perform at the end of the movie and everybody loves it. know that it is a case of rich people fucking with poor people so much as the wife of the rich radio guy is the most like flip frivolous heiress I think I've ever seen on film to the point where I was like gosh I want to be her when I grow up. I mean but she's the one who's very specifically fucking with her. Is she? I thought she was just like oh look A thing I could spend money on. Isn't this interesting? No, like she was never going to do that. Because when they call her, she like freaks out at the voice of a man that implies that like she might actually be able to get a symphony together. Like she was just doing it because she thought it was charming that this child thought she could get a symphony together when obviously she couldn't. And then, like, the moment she figures out it might actually happen, she like runs out. Yeah, she did abscond to Europe. Yeah. That's fair. I don't know. I think I just liked her from the beginning because I was like, oh, God, wouldn't it be nice to just be, like, super wealthy and give out money to artists all the time? But I guess I was projecting. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. Like, my vibe from that scene was definitely, like, God, when are they going to drop the pig's blood on her? Like, it had a very, like, prom and carry vibe of, like, they are being so mean to this child because they just think poor people are so delightful to fuck with. Well, now I really am, am angry about this. I will say one of the things that I liked about this movie, which is not exclusive to this film, but is something that I have noticed a lot in the movies that we watch that actually deal with the fact that there is a depression, is it shows that there are was still massive inequality and that there were still rich people. And I think a lot of the things that we focus on when we talk about the depression are like the 1929 stock market crash and how like a few very wealthy people committed suicide because they lost a lot of money. But I feel like growing up, I always thought like, oh, well, everybody was poor. And it's like, no, in the Depression, there were people who were still rich as hell while other people were literally starving to death. Yeah. And like, I think one of the things that this movie does well is its portrait of that class inequality. The way rich people brush off poor people and why, I think is really interesting in the movie. I think it's kind of frustratingly unexplored because they kind of can't figure out how to get a musical number for Deanna Durbin out of that. So it only happens 
every once in a while. I think actually for me, it was less that it was frustrating that they didn't explore it, but just nice that they did that as the backdrop for a movie that is otherwise like a cupcake. It was like a little edgier than most cupcake movies. You know, you you talked about when we were discussing Mr. Deeds Goes to Town, how the movie Mr. Deeds doesn't have any of the class stuff in it. The remake with Adam Sandler. And that's like the, that's so central to the story that I can't even imagine it. Whereas this is, it's not even central to this story, except that they're like out of work musicians. But like, you can have out of work musicians at any point in history, let's be honest. And this is like, no, they're out of work and they can't find work because there is a depression and people are really suffering. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's true. I also think like this is a little bit ripping off Lady for a Day is I think why that's in there. I, I That's strong. I'm, I'm like coming out swinging for this movie and I don't know why I thought it was fine. But like, I definitely got from the way this movie like references fairy tales and the way that like through sheer persistence, the scale of this like misunderstanding for good keeps escalating. That's a really good way of putting it. It is totally a misunderstanding for good. That felt kind of similar to Lady for a Day. Not in terms of like they wanted to make a ripoff, but in terms of like, that's the vibe they were going for. It was like on the mood board for this film or whatever. (laughs) And like, it mostly works. The class stuff is mostly working. I think what doesn't work is like, Honestly, Deanna Durbin is just not a very good actress. She's a very good singer, and the script doesn't really do her any favors, but God, she's insufferable. Oh, yeah. She's like, oh, daddy, daddy, you're back, daddy, daddy. And I'm like, did any teen girl ever in the history of the world act this way toward either parent? Right. The script, in her defense, does rely on people just screaming over each other to not tell vital plot details so that, like, no one can get a word in edgewise to explain the confusion around a thing. And she does constantly... (laughs) I just did it. She does constantly interrupt people for reasons that don't seem to make any sense. It's like, this person is trying to explain a thing. If you would just stop and then you can have your turn, the movie would be over, actually. That's that's why that (laughs) happened. doesn't happen yeah exactly it makes all of the scenes where she's like pleading her case to various people or like trying to get past a guard or trying to talk her way out of having to pay the bill from the taxi kind of like exhausting Mm -hmm. and makes you kind of just want to get to like can we get to the part where you sing and everybody just agrees with whatever you say because you sang good right that was kind of my experience honestly as an audience member was just like can we get back to the musical numbers obviously what's going to happen is you're going to keep screeching until they definitively tell you no, and then you sing, and then they go, oh, wait, I didn't realize you could sing. <laughs> and once again, it is that situation, like in Three Smart Girls, where she's in the police station, where they're like, oh, well, then actually everything's fine, because you can sing. The one nice moment was when the conductor was like, you sing very well, and you should take singing lessons. Anyway, I'm still not going to conduct your stupid orchestra, bye. <laughs> <laughs> I... Th- <I'm- laughs> I think it's worth mentioning that the conductor is actually Leopold Stokowski, like actually the famous conductor Leopold Stokowski, who directed uh, for Fantasia, which I didn't realize until I went back and read the Wikipedia article because like, because I just didn't think that would be a thing that he would do. 
But it does make sense as to why he is an incredibly one-note actor, no pun intended. Oh, for sure. But I do also think he does some of the best work about being a totally disconnected, rich, successful person as a result of that. (laughs) That just the way that he is just totally checked out and is like, yeah, in like five to ten years, you're going to be doing great as a singer. Anyway, good luck with the fucking Great Depression piece. Like... (laughs) Yeah, it's uh, this. There's not a whole lot to say about this movie, which I, uh, I, I, I hate to do. It's so straightforward, and every single beat you see coming a mile away. Yeah, this is a better Three Smart Girls, in my opinion. Oh, no question. It makes sense. Yes, it makes total sense. Although the sort of barriers to success are still kind of artificial, they're not so artificial that it doesn't have that weird Three Smart Girls ending where everybody just goes, I guess we'll resolve the plot now. Like there actually is a conflict and it is overcome in Act 3. I mean, when I say that the plot makes sense, it makes sense within the world that the film has created. Oh, for sure. I I don't think that anything would actually play out this way where it was like the rich guy's rich friends essentially trick him into deciding that he is going to pay for the unemployed musicians orchestra by saying like what a great idea it is and how they're going to steal it so that the president will like praise them and give them medals for helping out the poor was that a trick i see i don't know that's why i was like trick maybe yeah i mean there is this whole plot line where like one of his buddies and him are in a prank war that's like the most fucking threw some darts at a wall to have to fill time thing in the whole movie. But the friends seem genuinely into the idea that like you would get really good publicity from this thing. And like, honestly you would, and these people would come for cheap because they're out of work. It is in fact, kind of a good idea. I assumed that they were genuine about it, but I did also have the thought of like, is this a prank? Because like pranks are what this guy does, but then he's making an actually good argument for why this is a smart idea. Yeah, I mean, I guess, uh, I guess it's not a trick. And the only reason that I thought it was probably is because they were in that prank war. Yeah. And it was like, this is the ultimate prank is getting him to spend like several thousand dollars employing people. <laughs> Yeah, and, like, I kind of thought the same thing, too, but I was, like, waiting for the wink to the camera. Like, I was waiting for the, like, boom, got him thing once he leaves the room, and, like, it didn't happen, or I missed it or something. Right. So I was like, I guess he means it. There are two things in this movie that were very specific details that I found to be interesting or strange. One, the cab driver that, like, drives her all over town and is, like... I sing, and she's like, oh, can you stop? <laughs> was he charming or was he creepy? It's It really varied from scene to scene. Because there was some, like, lip licking and stuff when he said she was a really great singer, and I was like, ugh. Yeah. But then he seemed to be like, no, kid, you're gonna be a star. And I was like, okay, but now it's becoming, like, kind of brotherly. I don't know what is happening here. I mean, I honestly kind of wrote that off because in the same way as the prank war was just like, well, without this, the movie would be 57 minutes long. Mm. I felt the taxi driver also had a, like, real well, if we don't have 10 minutes of taxi driver scenes, this isn't a movie, it's a short vibe. Right. 
right? It honestly just felt like he was just saying something to say something. It's like when you watch outtakes from a comedy that was heavily improved, where you're like, oh, I get why we cut this. Yeah, they're just spitballing and not everything is gold. Yeah, exactly. It's vaguely amusing, but it has absolutely nothing to do with anything else. And it's just this weird disconnected scene. Yeah. And so I kind of did get like creepy vibes from him, but I also felt like, well, he's so plot inessential. It's like a Rorschach plot. There's just no substance there. Yeah, that makes sense. I think one of the things that bothered me about this movie, and again, I don't have anything like overly negative to say about it. I think it's a tight, for the most part, little film that is built around 40 minutes of Deanna Durbin singing songs. But one of the things that really creeped me out about this and about Three Smart Girls, the 1930s gaze on 16-year-old girls is way too adult for the way that the 16-year-old girls are presented as incredibly naive ingenues. Yeah. Like, there's nothing at all sexy or sexual about Deanna Durbin's character, and yet I feel like the camera is trying to force that. And it's really uncomfortable. I think that's true. And I also think it leads to that weird, what age is she supposed to be thing? Exactly. Where you're like, is she 16 or is she 22? Right. (laughs) And super immature. Because nobody reacts to her the way a human being would react to a human child. Right. And I don't mean that in the sense of like, that they treat her like an adult. I just mean it's like this totally alien reaction. (laughs) Where, like, they're so charmed by her in a way that you're charmed by, like, a six-year-old who can sing, not like a teenage girl. And this actually leads into the other thing that I found to be, like, a little strange. The song that she sings at the end, where the cab driver comes to the concert and is like, sing instead of doing a speech. And Sukowski is like, yeah, so what should we do? And she says, La Traviata. And then she sings... This drinking song from La Traviata that is sung by a character in the opera who is a courtesan. And I'm like, this is so inappropriate. (laughs) There are dozens of songs from opera that she could sing that would still be like above her age and would be impressive that she was able to sing that particular song, but are not literally a drinking song sung by a courtesan. Yeah. Like, they had to pick a song, you know, they could pick anything. There's a lot of opera out there. (laughs) That scene is so forced. It's so, like, we've got to have her sing at the end. God. And the movie does that so much. God, the other thing the movie does that I find wild is, like, every time she sings, people's immediate reaction, because, like, otherwise the plot can't happen, is, wow, you're a really good singer. Your dad must be extremely talented. (laughs) Or, like, where did you learn that? She's like, my dad taught me to sing. And I'm like, first of all, I mean, maybe, but also there's just some, like, inherent talent there, obviously. But does she go to school? Yeah. She's just, like, running around all day in cabs, like, going to rich guys' houses, and, like, she goes to essentially, like, a men's club? Not, like, a strip club in that, not the gentleman's club in that sense, but she just, like, shows up at a bar where her dad is, and then, like, the gentleman's club where the rich guys hang out. Does no one stop and go, you're a child, you're a little girl, perhaps you should not be here. Well, yeah, because then the movie has to actually answer the, like, you're 19 years old. (laughs) 
<laughs> she is what yeah exactly yeah she is treated when she's at the fancy rich person party like she's a precocious 12 year old but she's let into the bar like she's 19 she never has to fucking go your right to school or work or anything right from the way she's reacting to her father getting a job it seems like she is not old enough to be getting a job herself whatever anybody tells her that she's a good singer it's like someday you're gonna be good and it's like well if she's 18 and she's that great and she lives in new york city like she's she should just be auditioning for stuff and instead it's like when you're old enough to do that, but also you don't go to school? Yeah. I mean, maybe people just didn't go to school during the Depression. Hell, I don't know. No one does. No, no. one was there. <laughs> yeah, no. All records were lost. We only have Academy Award-nominated movies to go on for our understanding of the Great Depression. Which, to be honest, actually has given me a better understanding of the Great Depression than, like, my high school American history class did. So, and I took AP American history. Oh, yeah, for sure. You get a real sense of, like you're saying, there are still rich people and, like, there is still class inequality. It isn't just, like everybody just got 25% of their paycheck knocked off. Or if they did, like, the rich people could absolutely take that hit. Like, they're still wearing evening gowns and sitting around drinking champagne. Though that is one of the things that I imagine probably was not the case, is not that every single night during the late 30s that anyone who had money was just wearing a bias cut evening gown and drinking champagne. I actually, there's, um, I mean, sure, for sure. But like, there is actually a, the Ken Burns Great Depression documentary has this fascinating interview with a woman who was rich during the Great Depression, who's just like, it was fine. Everything was fine. Everybody was whining about shit all the time. But like, we were just having parties and it was fine. And I don't know what everybody was so worried about. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> it was fine. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh. Oh my god. And then shortly after that interview was shot, someone escorted her to the guillotine. (laughs) She made it to like the 90s, but then they finally caught up with her. (laughs) Oh well, R.I.P. Yeah. Terrible rich lady. Terrible rich lady who lived through the Depression. So apparently they were just like sitting around an evening gowns drinking champagne every night. Shows you what I know. So do you do you want to rate this movie? Yeah. Or do you have anything else to say about it? Because I don't. Uh, yeah, I don't really. We covered the we covered the prank war. We covered Taxi Guy. Like, there's the weird flautist that does weird eye stuff that's super creepy. But like, I'm gonna forget about him, except in my nightmares. By the time we're done recording, you literally just described his entire character arc. Yeah. <laughs> Which is that there isn't one, and he's just a weird flautist who makes eyebrow moves all the time. Honestly, I only remembered him because if he is at the bottom left of the poster for the movie. Oh, yeah. And that that drawing of him is going to haunt my nightmares. Yeah, he's actually creepier in this poster than he is in the movie. For sure. But yeah, uh, a six? It's a six? Uh... Is that high? I don't know. It feels no, like- I- six is good because five is average right yeah and like the problem with this movie isn't that it like doesn't hit its target it's that it's not aiming particularly high no it set a bar that you could trip over (laughs) yeah for sure but it did clear it yeah (laughs) 
And like, as an excuse for like a couple of pretty good musical numbers, it all works out and doesn't like say anything horribly offensive. I couldn't tell you what they are right now because, again, it was not the most engaging movie I've ever seen in my entire life. But I do remember several times thinking that there were certain shots and certain bits of cinematography that were like too good for this level of movie. It's like if you've watched a Seth Rogen early comedy and it had like Terrence Malick's cinematography in it you'd be like i don't understand why this is here but like okay sure it looks nice i always like that in a movie where you can tell like the cinematographer was staying a little long like really (laughs) wanted to do do something with this one i am an artist and i'm gonna be an artist no matter what garbage you throw my way not to say seth rogan early comedies are garbage but like you know what i mean they're not supposed to be great works of art visually right you're not here for the like sweeping long shots or the like interesting framing of whatever but it did have that occasionally so i feel like it is above average or like above or below par i don't know how par works but i know that it is like the certain number of things that you're supposed to get a certain golf hole in so like They said that this movie should be like a five and it it was a little bit better than it was aiming for, but it wasn't aiming that high. Yeah, it is broadly mysterious to me that this got nominated for Best Picture. I mean, except that, like you said, it does exactly what it set out to do and it does it well. Well, sure, but like we... We don't nominate early Seth Rogen comedies for Best Picture, right? That's true. Which, like, you would say the same thing of. Yeah. Wait, didn't they nominate the 40-year-old version for Best Picture? God, did they? That would actually raise my opinion significantly of the Academy. Uh, no, they did not. I don't know why I thought that. I have no idea why I thought that, but uh, apparently I did. Yeah, I mean, six is, I think six is totally reasonable. Should you watch this movie? Nah. (laughs) Yeah, no, not really. I was going to say, like, if you're a big fan of classical music, but, like, actually, even then. No, just watch just Fantasia. Watch... Yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> this movie has done a service by reminding people who like classical music, Fantasia exists. <laughs> In case they forgot. Yeah. God, what's on the docket for next week again? Stage Door. Right. Which is the other A Star is Born from this year. It is starring Catherine Hepburn. And what's what's fascinating to me is I feel like every time that we have a Catherine Hepburn movie and I read the Wikipedia article, it's like, this was the comeback for Catherine Hepburn. And I'm like, she was just nominated in a movie like a year or two ago. (laughs) How does she keep having to have a comeback? Yeah, that's wild. Oh, Lucille Ball's in this one. Yes, she is. As something other than like a glorified extra. Right. But yeah, I feel like that's like a weird superpower some like actors and actresses have where like you're always rooting for them to pull through and it's like they are wildly successful. (laughs) They are one of the most famous people on earth. Yeah, but they've just been having a tough time of it lately. How? Somebody said something mean about him, I think. I feel like that happens with Tom Cruise literally every time he does a movie. Yes, It's Tom Cruise's big comeback and like critics hate the movie and yet somehow still managed to be like, and it's Tom Cruise's big comeback. 
Like, he doesn't have to make another movie for the rest of his fucking life. And that has been true for, like, 20 years. And he makes a movie, like, every three to four years. Yeah. Halle Berry was getting this treatment, like, the other day that somebody was like, it's time for Halle Berry's comeback. And I'm like, isn't she, like, on a TV show? Didn't she win an Oscar? What are we, like... Yeah, what is she coming back from? Yeah. But, yeah, we'll, I mean, we'll find out what Catherine Hepburn is... uh, third comeback movie looks like yeah it's her third comeback movie and she's like 25 or something at this point (laughs) maybe a little bit older than that but like how many times does she need to have a comeback oh she's 30 oh well in this next movie yeah that's (laughs) yeah she's ancient she's got a transition to being a mom in her next movie oh and she becomes box office poison next year so (laughs) (laughs) Only to then go on to do The Philadelphia Story, The African Queen, Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, The Lion in Winter, and On Golden Pond. She's got a rough couple of years coming up. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's gonna be a rough time for that Catherine Hepburn. Yeah, so basically she also had to come back every four years or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, until then... This was a movie, I'll give it that. It... yeah. Oh, it was absolutely a movie. It was absolutely a movie. It almost wasn't. I could say, like, it It almost was a series of shorts, but I think it really pulled it together <laughs> and made itself a movie. All right. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.